Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Good morning and uh, welcome. We are continuing in Mark's gospel and uh, we got a passage today. Like a, like a passage, passage from the Bible. It's a whole chapter, uh, but that's the section that it is. And we said that we wanted to walk through Mark's gospel um, chunk by chunk, and this happens to be the chunk, um, so good luck to me. Um, and also what that means is that uh, we're going to finish the gospel of Mark. We, we started this church in September 2021 saying we want to renew our commitment to following Jesus. We want to go follow the real and the raw Jesus from Scripture and we've been doing that for a very long time. And so uh, seven more weeks um, leading up to Easter, we're going to do that. Um, before I read this passage, actually, um, I want to give two caveats because this um, passage is complex and it's often misunderstood. So two caveats here. Uh, this is a heavily debated text. Um, I read six commentaries this week. None of them fully agreed on its contents. And so uh, that was fun. And then um, all of them call this passage uh, the little apocalypse. And so what you're getting is, uh, this is like a big uh, theological word, eschatology, the study of the end times. And so you're getting a lot of depth about the end times, and we'll try to um, figure that out um, here today. Another commentary I read says, this is an interpretive minefield. And I said, that's great. That's great. Um, I'm not going to, and my second caveat is this, I'm not going to deal with every aspect uh, of the text, never really do, um, but if you have questions, email me, or go home and study and pray and say, God, what, what do you want me, me to learn about your character and your nature uh, through this, so that we can um, be a community that learns together, and then in the end, we will get to uh, a bit of application to how God um, wants to teach us something through this passage. So I'll read it, and then I will pray. Uh, Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are but birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm at the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let not no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take it out. 
let no one go in the field, go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possibly, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And then notice the break here. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twig gets tenders and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells, that, tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So God, I just pray that you would be in our midst right now. Um, I'm honest, God, I'm I'm overwhelmed by this text. Um, You're so mysterious in in, in some ways. This is hard to understand. And so I pray right now um, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our minds, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us the the faith that it takes to understand uh, what you're up to and what you did when you were on earth. I pray that uh, you would use this passage today um, to humble us, to help us seek you, to help us live in our day-to-day so that we would be people that are sent out of here learning how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I pray that the things that you talked about that would happen in the future, that they would impact our present in the here and in the now. May your kingdom come, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, with a visual here. Uh, Today is actually the first uh, Sunday of Lent, and this is something as a church that um, we want to follow. Uh, We're a non-denominational church, so this is not something that we have to do, but rather we see this actually um, as a gift. And so I want to kind of walk us through this graphic here really quickly. Um, This calendar helps shape our our love for Jesus, but it actually also helps us uh, figure out our place in the story. What is our place in the story that God is telling in time and history? And so it's a little bit small up top, so I'll walk us through. Um, The church calendar doesn't start in January, but actually starts in November with uh, Advent. Advent um, means um, Adventus um, in the Latin. It's coming or arrival. And so we say, um, how is it that we long for Jesus to come into our midst when he comes at Christmas? He comes at Christmas in the incarnation, and you'll see that there um, in December. Uh, And then we're into a season uh, called Epiphany. It's a a season of revelation. It's a season of saying, 
um, Jesus, how, what does it look like to follow you? How, how do we know that um, you're at work and how you're revealed? And I think it's, it's been perfect that we've been walking through the book of Mark through Epiphany. And today is the first Sunday of Lent where, and I'll talk about this more at the end here, um, where we focus on our mortality, where we f- focus on um, our sinfulness, our distance from God. And uh, I love that Emily read that passage in Joel to return to me with all of your heart. That's the goal of, of Lent. We turn away from the things that distract us and come back to God. And then at Easter, um, we celebrate the resurrection. Easter is a day, but it's also a season in the church calendar. What does resurrection life um, begin to look like? And um, after this Easter, what we're going to do as a church is we're going to spend time um, looking at our values as a church. What kind of church do we want to be? And what does it mean um, to be shaped by Jesus' story? Um, And then uh, Pentecost Sunday there is Jesus' ascension. And then we move into ordinary time until Advent. Um, In ordinary time, we're going to focus on things like prayer. We're going to do a series on um, relationships, um, friendships, marriage relationships, singleness, um, some of these things. The question with this becomes, and you can leave that up, the question becomes, how does the story that God is telling through his son Jesus inform how we gather and worship? How do we actually let this inform how we live, right? Like Lent is not a natural thing. Focusing on our mortality um, our, our, um, our brokenness is not something we generally gravitate towards, right? And the other question becomes, how is it that we join in on the story that God is telling rather than try and tell a story apart from God? And so we're joining in in God's story. And what I found this week is that this passage um, is an invitation to that kind of life. This passage is an invitation to think about the future so that it might inform our present, and it also happened to be the first Sunday of Lent, and so I thought this is a great time to think about that. Um, On Wednesday night, we had our Ash Wednesday service. Um, If you were there, you knew it was just a a time of depth. It was a time of of prayer. It was a time of presence, silence, songs, all of this, and it kicks off Lent, this um, 40-day season, and and Lent, um, all Lent, um, the word Lent means is spring. it's, It's the days are uh, growing longer, right? We're anticipating resurrection life. If you, you, you look outside, it's cold today. Um, you look at the ground, the ground is turning over, right? The, the trees and the leaves, everything has died, and we're longing again for the sun, right? We're longing again for things to come up, but it's a process, right? And so is our human condition, which is why uh, Lent falls in this season. And I, I think what better way to practice Lent than to follow Jesus for the next seven weeks? as he heads towards his death. And what we actually get to, we get to reflect on is Jesus is in the last week of his life focusing on his own mortality, and guess what we get to do? We get to mirror the posture that Jesus has. And so Emily did a great job of showing this last week, but um, where we find ourselves in our passage is Jesus' last week of his life. Uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, meek and mild on a donkey. Um, he's going in and out of the temple is what we're finding in these passages. He walks in the temple. Brandon talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's flipping over the tables. And what he's doing is he's illustrating what justice looks like for the poor and the marginalized who are coming to make temple sacrifices and barriers have been placed up for them. And then Jesus um, doesn't just go back and forth from the temple, but he goes back and forth in arguments with the religious leaders of the time and he answers every question flawlessly. And here in the beginning of our passage with the disciples, um, they, uh, the disciples and Jesus are walking outside the temple. And it's funny that when we read the passage, um, they're walking outside the temple, and um, one of his disciples is fascinated by the buildings. And it's not because like one of his disciples is like an urban planner or an architect, but actually you have to remember that the disciples 
are like from the backwoods, like West Virginia, Galilee, all right? And so, sorry if you're from West Virginia, this is like the best parallel. Um, but the disciples are fascinated by these buildings. Um, it's sort of like when you have a friend visit you from out of town, and they say, can you please take me to Times Square? And you say, no, I will not, <laughs> all right? So think of it this way. There's, they're fascinated by um, the buildings, but here's the other thing. Um, his, historians say, uh, Josephus writes a lot about this, the temple was beautiful. Like, the temple was beautiful. It was a thing that, like, you would walk by and you'd say, like, how did they do that? How, how was that built? It is incredible. Limestone blocks weighing two to five, two to five tons each. And the, the disciples are walking by and they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Look at Jesus, such a killjoy, right? Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. You think the building is beautiful? It's going to die, all right? Yeah, come on, Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is absolutely unthinkable to a Jewish mind. Unthinkable. The, the temple was the center of everything. It was the center of all religious activity, social activity, economic life, cultural life. It was the core. If you pull up maps from antiquity, what they've actually done is they've relocated the center of the world. They've made it Jerusalem. Because it was the center of everything. It was their way of saying, you want to know what the center of the world is? It's Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. But it wasn't just the center of the world. It was the, the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was where they met. Here's a little um, diagram. Sometimes these are called um, a sacred overlap. And so you have heaven and earth, and right in the middle is the temple, right? The temple was the place where on earth, God could be found. Isn't that a thing, maybe you, you, you would just pause and say, okay, like, I know I have a lot of priorities in my life, like work, relationship, family, like I have these things, and then something deep down inside of you says, there's like something I know that's just a little bit more. Like, I know there's just something a little bit deeper there. And I would say, of course, I'm a pastor, so I would say this, but like that, that thing is like longing for the presence of God. And the temple in this time was the place where you could find that. It was the place where, where um, on earth you're like, I desire heaven. I desire something more. And that sacred overlap happens. God's presence could be found. God could be known in that place. And so then what happens in the text is it, it's really subtle, but Jesus actually walks out of Jerusalem. Um, he walks across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives with Peter, James, John, Andrew, and they start talking um, privately. And this is the view they actually would have had. This is a modern-day picture. But they were standing by the temple. They walked across the valley, and that's the view they would have had. And here's the question. Tell us when these things would happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now, I, I said this before. This is a modern-day picture um, the, that's the Dome of the Rock that was built in the 7th century, but it, it, was, it was actually built on top of where the temple would have been. And so it's the same view that Jesus and the disciples would have happened. Tell us when these things will happen. And the language here really helps clarify what Jesus is about um, to talk about. And this is where we've got to kind of hone in and, and pay attention. Jesus just got done saying, this temple that you think is so beautiful is going to be destroyed. And then the next thing that happens is Jesus says, or the disciples ask, when will these things happen? And later you're going to find out uh, a difference between these things and those days. 
all right? Because we're talking about apocalyptic literature. It gets a little crazy. It gets a little confusing. But notice the language. These things, those days. And what Jesus is doing in this little apocalypse here is he's beginning to answer the disciples' questions, walking back and forth between different future events. That's why this gets a little bit confusing. But I want you to notice verse 30. Verse 30, it's not on the screen here, but it says this. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things happen. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is talking about a future event for the disciples, but a past event for us. This is my opinion. This is how I, I, I read the text, okay? In AD 70, that temple where the Dome of the Rock stands, in AD 70, the temple was burned to the ground. There was a horrendous war that led a Roman general by the name of Titus into Jerusalem, raiding the temple and burning it to the ground, right? And so what Jesus is doing immediately after they ask, when are these things going to happen, is he's, in my opinion, he's talking about the temple. He's saying there's going to be, in their lifetime, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, famine, war, persecution, nation against nation, people looking to deceive. He's saying these are actually the things that are going to take place in the disciples' lifetime. And so just if, if you want to go with me here a little bit deeper, um, this uh, textual sort of construction here is really helpful. So what you have here in verses 1 through 4 is what we kind of just unpacked, a warning about the temple. And in verses 5 through 13, Jesus sounds like he's being apocalyptic and like for all time, but actually when we're reading it, he's talking to the disciples about what they're going to experience in that time. And then in 14 and uh, 23, when he's talking about hopefully it doesn't happen in winter, what about nursing um, and pregnant mothers, this is actually about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's warning the disciples, this is going to happen in your lifetime. And then I see it as a break in the text. And this is what we'll primarily get to here in a bit is the end of all things. Jesus is talking about his second coming, when he's going to return in verses 24 and 27. And then what he's talking about in the rest of the passage is how we stay awake how we're mindful of how we live when Jesus is going to come back. Why is this important? Why, why, do I, why do I show you this? The reason is because if you read the passage, and a lot of people do this, you read the passage and you say, when is the end of the world going to be, right? Like, when is when's everything going to happen, okay? Mark 13 is not a horoscope, all right? That this is a lot, what a lot of people do with this passage. They say, okay, you know what? the false prophet guy upstate, the, the cult lady with the hair on Netflix. Like, I looked at the news. There's a war, China, Russia, Ukraine, America, famine in that one country. I think the world's going to end, right? Um, maybe like 2027, May 18th, right? Like anybody's birthday? No, okay. That would have been bad. You would have got a free, like a free card in, right? Okay, so this is, this is what happens, though, if, if you take this too far right? And this is why we need to delineate what Jesus is saying. Because apparently no one actually reads verse 32. It says, but about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the fathers. The angels don't know. The son doesn't know. You and I definitely don't know. And only one who knows is the father. And if we read this passage and you say, wow, this is like a horoscope, then you, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. Jesus is trying to communicate something to his disciples in the first part about what's going to happen in their lifetime. And this was very, very, very beneficial for them. Okay? He, Jesus is saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. You know, see how I live. Do what I do. And where's he going? 
going to his death. And along the way, the disciples are evaluating, is this the life that I want? Is this the life that I want to follow Jesus towards his death? And so Jesus is giving them warnings about what's going to happen to them. Persecution is coming your way. Famine can come in the land. Rome is coming. And, and these things were fulfilled in his lifetime. If, if you've studied history at all, 80, 50, and 60, the, the persecution that Christians had under Nero was very real. And so this was actually beneficial to them in their lifetime. And then, I, I also should say, that doesn't mean this passage is not about the end of all things. But what is it that Jesus wants to communicate? Because otherwise we say, this thing happened, this thing happened, this thing happened, this thing happened, and you know, we're probably going to die soon, right? But this is what Jesus says in verse 24, which is sort of a transition. But in those days, and that language is helpful, right? These things, and now he's transitioning, those days, following that distress. And what does Jesus do so brilliantly in this passage is he's actually um, quoting the Old Testament. He quotes five different Old Testament verses. Here he's quoting Isaiah chapter 13. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then here it is, right here. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is not thinking about AD 70 anymore. I think he's thinking broader, right? He's talking about his second coming. Right? Jesus came in his first coming that, uh, if you look at the chart, his Christmas, the uh, incarnation, and um, Jesus came as a helpless baby. He came meek and mild. He came to uh, die as a, a sinless, suffering servant um, to carry the condemnation of our sin. That was his, his first coming. And we emphasize this. And, and, and if I'm honest, we, um, we love the humanity of Jesus, right? It's so tangible. It's so helpful, and we live in that hope, right, of what Jesus has done. But I don't know about you, I'm pretty focused on the present, right? And that does not mean I'm a present person. Uh, that just means I'm pretty focused or engrossed with the present. And Jesus is actually warning us here that he's going to come again to make all things new. He's promising us his presence. He's coming with, what's the words, power and glory. He's coming different. He's not going to come as a, as a baby this time, meek and mild. He, he, what he's done on the cross has, has been accomplished. He's coming again to do a, a couple of things. I want to read you this passage in Acts chapter 1. It's really helpful. This is um, Jesus' ascension, and his disciples are gathered around him after his resurrection. And they say, Lord, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Again, you don't know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then it goes on to say, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him going into heaven. A cloud. A cloud again. And a cloud in the Old Testament represented the presence of God, the, the cloud coming to rest on the tabernacle, the, the thing I said before that our hearts so deeply longs for is the presence of God. And so this is Jesus' promise. 
I came. I did the work. I accomplished it. We're going to celebrate that at Good Friday and Easter. And I'm coming again. So what is Jesus coming again to do? Well, the first promise, if you read Revelation, is to, to make all things new. Uh, contrary to popular belief, he's not, he's not going to come and whisk you and I away to heaven, no thanks to Kirk Cameron, but he's actually coming um, to restore and redeem all things, to bring total and complete restoration. All systemic injustice, pain, grief, loss, hatred, um, racism, sexism, violence, God is going to come back and put all of those things right. What else? The passage says that, um, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to gather those who have placed their faith in him and bring them with him. His presence come to those who say, um, Jesus is my Lord, he's my boss, and he, he's my savior because I know I can't save myself, I put my faith in him. And then lastly, the, 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 the painting that scripture paints is that Jesus is going to come and judge the living and the dead. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, which we'll sing here in a little bit, um, says that he ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then good, this Acts passage is here too. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as, ju- as, as judge of the living and the dead. I know what you're thinking. You're like, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge either, right? But Jesus, Jesus came to save, and he's coming again to put all things right. And in order to do that, he has to be the righteous judge. Interestingly enough, you may not think of it this way. Um, the Christian church now focuses a lot on death, burial, resurrection, right? Death, burial, resurrection. This is like a focus. And I, I, think, this is, I think this is primarily um, correct. But Jesus here in Mark is saying, I'm coming again, and you should also, this should also be a part of your hope. This is a part of the resurrection plan that I come back and bring you with me and redeem and heal everything. And maybe you're thinking today, well, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm glad I didn't invite a friend today, you know. Um, I thought you might communicate something sensible today. Um, it's a lot, I, I, I know. But maybe what, what you're thinking is, is Russell, I don't, I don't actually need doctrine. Russell, I don't, I don't want history in your dance studio, right? I need wisdom. Maybe you're thinking to yourself today, I need hope. I, I came here actually this morning because I needed a bit of encouragement. I need to know that when I leave here, everything is going to be okay. I need, to, I need to grieve or I need to learn how to grieve. I'm, I'm here to, to work out a better work-to-life balance in the city because my life is, is, is crazy. Actually, this is exactly what Mark 13 is trying to do. It's not trying to inf- give, like, inform you, give you information about the end times. It's actually meant to caution you to slow down and to pay attention to where God is at work in your midst, where his presence actually is, right? And I love that this ties into Lent so well. The invitation at, at Lent is to slow down. Where have you been living for yourself? Where have you not been paying attention to your neighbor? Where do you need to let go of some of the things that you're wrestling with so that you can return to God? This is why fasting is often uh, paired with Lent. It's a way of saying, I've been dependent on that. And I'm ready to release it and turn back to God. And Jesus says, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And I love these phrases. Be on guard. Be alert. 
You don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Uh, the word in the Greek is gregeo. It, it, it means, um, it's like when you're watching a movie and it's really late at night and you're like, you're trying, you know, you're just like, I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to pay attention. It's like, no, 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 sit up. Put, your po- put yourself in a new posture to wake up. Here's the point of the passage. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. Th- this is what the passage is about. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. So if your telos, like your end, the future that you long for is retirement, then what you'll do is you'll strive towards that end and you'll work and you'll work and you'll work until you can retire and you'll model that during the week. You'll work and you'll work and you'll live for the weekend, right? When you don't actually realize that work is a gift from God and what, what we do in work is that we join God as he um, is in, in the business of actually restoring things in heaven, um, in, on earth as it will be in heaven. We get to, to do that. So what you believe about the future and the, the end that you live for actually change how you live in the present. And so if, if you come here and you say, um, when I die nothing happens. I become really good fertilizer for, for a park or something. Then, then the natural two go-tos for your life will be numbing or control. And here's why. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to be um, crass here. But if, if the thing that you live for and long for is nothing, then you have to somehow numb yourself to the realities of this world through alcohol, sex, drugs, wh- wh- whatever it is, because this world is painful, Right? This is just a reality of this world, right? And if you're not going to numb yourself, then you're going to try to control, right? I have to go get mine because I'm not so sure of the future. So you know what I'll do? I will work hard. I will strive. I will try to um, uh, manage the things that are around me because in the end, there's nothing. I might as well do something. Or if, if the, the hope of your future is that Jesus is going to come and whisk you away, right? He's going to take you to heaven rather than uh, what the Bible shows is like that heaven actually comes to earth. Then you know what the primary desire is? It's going to be escapism, right? I can't wait for Jesus to, to get me out of here. This, this world is so awful, right? And, and this world is, is gross. It's dirty. It's, it's sinful. It's, it's full of evil. Like this is why my mom couldn't dance at her Baptist college, Right? Is because like we have to escape everything dirty, right? And what happens is, is you actually become a fundamentalist because the goal is actually to escape. And Jesus is saying something different. Jesus is saying, if the future that you so long for is me coming back, you don't have to strive. You can work faithfully. If the thing that you so long for is for me to come back and to redeem all things, you can actually do your part in creation. You don't have to numb yourself to the realities of the world, but you can actually enjoy the good things that I've given you on this earth, right? And, and on top of that, you know what we can do? We can pray. We can pray and we can say, God, will you be present with me because I'm longing for your presence in this broken world, right? I think that um, what Jesus so brilliantly does is to the disciples and to us is he steals hope from the future. 
he, he talks about the future with, with hope. And he gives it to us in the present moment, right? There's hope in the future and his resurrection and his, and his coming to make all things new. And he's handing it to us on a platter now to say, you can actually live into the reality of my resurrection life. And you can live into the reality of the fact that I want to come and make all things new. And um, maybe I'd just be honest for a minute. I told you before, I'm pretty like engrossed in the future, um, in the present, um, worried about how things are going to um, pan out, trying to tinker with things all the time, trying to make sure my kids are in the right school. And, you know, is this apartment thing going to like, if we're going to be able to stay longer, we're going to get kicked out because the rent keeps going up. And just so many day-to-day worries, and, and we're all there, right? On top of that, we add into like health concerns that we have, relational dynamics that we're wrestling with. And if I'm really honest with you, I don't think about the second coming a lot, right? I think about what, what Jesus' death has done for me quite a bit. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, right? But I'm not, I'm not so concerned with something bigger. And I think maybe what the second coming does so brilliantly for us is it, it zooms us out. And it says, what if, what if it's not just about you and this personal salvation thing with Jesus, but what if actually the hope of Jesus is the restoration of all things? Like for your neighbor, for your neighborhood, for your family, for our city. And this passage is so brilliant. He says, wake up. And in some ways, I think what we need to hear this morning is wake up and zoom out. This is for you for sure, right? This is a gift to you, but zoom out and think broader. And this brings us back to Lent. The invitation at Lent is to turn away from the things that distract us. And I, I, I don't always think that fasting at Lent is the most helpful thing because we're like chocolate and, you know, like Netflix or something. And, and, and we cheat on Sundays, right? That's like the, the thing. But what if, what if what the Holy Spirit actually wants to say is, what room needs to be made for my presence to come in? And in order to do that, I'm going to be really honest, what the Bible says is that you have to die to yourself. It's not, not fun, right? We have to die. We have to make room so that God's presence can come and to fill that up. And so I want to just end, um, the band can come up. I want to, I want to end with this quote from uh, Henry Nouwen. And I just think that this is um, just a, a helpful way to think about today. Henry Nouwen, it's a prayer. I think it's in a book called um, Cry of the Soul, I think. He says, yes, Lord, I have to die with you, through you, and in you, and thus become ready to recognize you when you appear to me in your resurrection. This, there is so much in me that needs to die. False attachments, greed and anger, impatience and stinginess. Oh Lord, I am self-centered, concerned about myself, my career, my future, my name and fame. Often I even feel that I use you to my own advantage. Yes, Lord, I know it's true. I know that often I've spoken about you, written about you, and acted in your name for my own glory and success. Your name has not led me to persecution, oppression, or rejection. Your name has brought me rewards. I see clearly how little I have died with you, really gone your way and been faithful to it. Oh, Lord, make this Lenten season different from the other ones. Let me find you again. Amen. And I just want to share this uh, last verse. It's actually the the second-to-last verse in the Bible, which is uh, brilliant. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. And may this be our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
And so, Father, um, as we begin Lent today, this um, season of um, introspection, a season of repentance, I just go first and I say, Lord, I'm, uh, forgive me when I don't die to myself, but I put myself first. Lord, forgive me when I um, forget that you promised to come again and make all things right, and so I don't have to strive, I don't have to numb, I don't have to control. And God, I, I pray right now as a church that we would be a people that are understanding in, um, in really deep ways what you want to communicate, that you're the one that's doing the work. You're the one that's doing the work of accomplishing on the cross in the resurrection. And we look to you and we lean on you. God, help us over the next seven weeks to turn away from the things that numb us, distract us. Help us turn away from those things. And um, maybe that Joel 2 verse would be the thing that calls us back. Return to me with all of your heart that we would be a people that are turning back to you, that are letting go of the things that are in the way so that we might know you and that our city might be better off, that we would be the kind of people who are loving our neighbor as ourselves, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.